Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks again for joining us today for this series of conversations. Uh, when Steve Engel introduced our last panel, he pointed out that this event, while happening in the Capitol, is so close to the Supreme Court. And I have to admit, even after a couple of decades in Washington, I'm always struck by the moment where you're standing either in front of the Capitol or in front of the Supreme Court, and you can see both buildings across from one another. And when I have people visiting from out of town, I always like to take them to that spot between the Capitol and Congress and say, look, here we are. On one side of the street, you see where all the laws are made, and on the other side of the street, you see Congress. Um, so. I mean, it's important to keep in mind the difference between the three branches, as Judge Griffith pointed out, and that's really core to the work that we do here at the Gray Center, focusing on all three of these constitutional institutions and the important part they play and the importance of them not trying to play the other parts. And so that's informed so much of the Gray Center's work. It's also informed the work of our keynote speaker today, Ambassador C. Boyden Gray. Uh, you know him mostly, I, I suspect, for his work in the executive branch as White House counsel, for all of his work on regulatory reform in the Reagan administration, and then later as special envoy uh, for uh, Eurasian energy issues and as the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. But of course, in addition to that, he's had a career of service in and around the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary, either working on cases or working on the, the hard work of, of getting judges confirmed. Before all of that, uh, he worked, his work focused a lot on Congress. As a practicing lawyer in the 1970s at the, at, at the famous law firm of William, Wilmer, Cutler, and Pickering, he did so much work focused on what was happening in Congress in that era. And so it's interesting to see now at this point in his career so much of his work focusing once again on Congress. And I know that firsthand from my own years of working with him at Boyd and Gray and Associates, but now just as an observer uh, seeing his work in and around Congress. And so with his focus on all three branches of government, he really is the ideal keynote speaker for today's event. But I also want to say a word about Jen Mascott. She spent the morning introducing other folks, and, and nobody ever got a chance to introduce her. Uh, Jen rejoined uh, Scalia Law a year ago after her, her own service in the Justice Department, working at the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, she's worked with Justice Thomas and then Judge Kavanaugh as a clerk, and her own scholarship is focused on the separation of powers, uh, especially in terms of the administrative state. Uh, her arrival at the Grace Center really ushered in a new era of our work sort of reaching out directly to folks on Capitol Hill, educating members of Congress in conjunction with Steve at the Article I venture, and then also in organizing the, the Gray Center Separation of Powers Clinic, which is overseen by Trent McCotter, who's, who's here as well today. And so we're so proud of the work we're doing now, trying to connect ideas to actual governance, um, both through writings and through direct outreach like this. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Jen. Thanks so much, Adam, and thanks to you all for sticking with us, and thanks to the folks online. We now have a real treat to be able to hear from um, former White House counsel and Ambassador C. Boyden Gray, has held many uh, roles and been involved in many ways um, around Washington, D.C., uh, really as a star, a very influential attorney for decades, working uh, with the Institution of Congress in particular, and then also really being at the front seat of what was happening um, in the White House with nominations process for Justice Thomas and many other judges. And so we just want to give Boyden a chance to talk really today about the institution of Congress and the courts, how they've changed over the years, and glean uh, wisdom from your experience. So I guess I'll just start with a fairly open-ended question about how you see the institution of Congress in particular. Has it changed in the several decades since you've started working in Washington? 
Of the three branches, it's undergone the greatest change of, of the three, no question. And um, it's, it's not d totally dis dysfunctional, but it doesn't provide the same output that it did for, you know, 200-plus years. Um, what are the reasons for this? What are the, what are the indicia? Well, w some of it's pretty nerdy, but one thing was airline deregulation, uh, which lowered the cost of air travel, which made it possible for congressmen to sort of commute back and forth. That was later sort of codified by, I think, Gingrich as part of the, of the money that they were paid. Part of their compensation was to include travel. And so it's a, like a two- or three-day work week. They don't have time to mix with themselves, really, let alone anybody else. And um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's too bad uh, that, that that happens. Um, back when I first came here, senators were here, congressmen were here, they had good, good home stretches where they could go do politics, but they, their kids were in school here. They had to meet each other at parent-teacher meetings. Uh, um, there were no, no way to avoid each other, and there were friends across the aisle always. And then there were the great dinners that gave. There were about six great grand dames in Washington who gave these very fancy dinners led by Kay Graham, and you'd have Democratic and Republican senators there, um, and sometimes they go off in a huddle with a, bottle, with a glass of brandy after dinner, and you'd be surprised what got decided. Um, but that just doesn't exist anymore. And um, I, for one, went to a couple of Joe Ossip dinners where he threw people out of, out of his house, and that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore either. So uh, there's a lot been lost there because of, because of that. Then I think it was really Gingrich when he took the House, Republicans for the first time in 40 years, he pulled, started pulling more and more stuff into the, into the Speaker's office, sort of bypassing the committees. Um, and that's been followed by every majority leader and, and, and Speaker since. Pelosi says, you know, uh, we got to pass legislation in order to find out what's in it. Now, because the regular order doesn't exist, they don't have markups, they don't have floor debates, and it's, um, it's a, uh, I think, kind of a, kind of a tragedy. Uh, to give you one example, I, and, and I don't have all day, of course, but this one example I always remember as being um, relevant was, was the way it, it, we handled when I was doing work on the Hill for um, the Business Roundtable, which has taken a slightly woke turn, but that's, not, that's off the record. Um, the, uh, it, was, it was a very busy time. But there were, no, there were no cell phones, and I had to take my instructions from a, a, a threesome of general counsel of three major companies that were running the roundtable's um, uh, process for these antitrust issues, Mark Scott Rodino, Illinois Brick. And uh, I had to get briefed every two weeks, but in the middle, I was on my own because I had no way of of communicating, so it was kind of heady for someone. I wasn't even 30 years old when some of this stuff was happening. Uh, but one of my favorite stories was uh, working with Jim Allen, who was the master of the Senate rules. There's only one other body, some of you may know this, but I bet you most don't. There's only one other legislative body in the world that has the same rules as the Senate where we're now sitting. And it's known as the rule of unanimous consent, basically, and that's just, 
the legislature of Alabama, and he was lieutenant governor for 12 years, so he knew the rules better than Byrd did, better than anybody did, better than the, uh, better than the uh, experts did. And he would, when there was this floor fight, I think it was on Hart Scott Rodino, I can't remember, he would place me up in the balcony, it's all illegal, um, not illegal, but, but against the rules of the Senate, but no one seemed to stop me. And if he had a compromise that was being discussed, he would, he would write the words on a piece of paper, and then he would look up at me and go like this. And, and, the, and I would wait, and sooner or later the paper would come up here. And I would, it was compromised language, and I'd either go like this or go like this. And he'd say, fine, and go tell Mansfield, who was the majority leader. Mansfield finally figured it out by triangulating that he was really looking at me. So he didn't wait for Alan to tell him. He just looked at me. And I can remember once looking at him and going like this, and him going like this. So that's the way things, but, they, but that was work. You know, that was really work. And nobody left Congress um, on a piece of legislation not knowing what was in it, believe me. And um, one of the key issues was amendments to the third degree. Now, I, I, I suspect Judge Griffith knows this, but how many people here have ever heard of an amendment to the third degree? Well, nobody. See, that's the point. Amendment to the third degree is something that you can't do um, in markup sessions and on the floor, and uh, it's sort of a shame that people have lost this fine art. So that's, that's, I think, why Congress has kind of gone off the rails. It's really, a lot of it's just physical, physical presence. And um, then there are a couple of other factors, spending too much time on this, a couple of other factors. One, I think, identified first by Naomi Rao. I think some of the Congressman, after they lost the legislative veto in Chada, um, sort of left things uh, fuzzy or vague, so that the so that the agency had to come back to them, uh, and lobbyists had to come back to them to find out what the real answer was um, and how to how to deal with it. And I thought that could be cleared up because it was kind of it was a little bit smelly because you know a lot of campaign finance money coming in. Private litigants had to have their visits to OMB or to the agencies logged. So I proposed in a, to, to, to President Bush when he was looking for material in 1992, as we're going, 1991, as we're going into the election, I said, let's have all congressional contacts with the agencies logged so we can trace what they're doing. And that seemed to be a good idea, except that once it was circulated within the White House to show you how important this was, it took a quail about 60 seconds to get in my office. He'd been in the House and the Senate, and he said, if you persist in this, I'll have to see that you are fired. So that was the end of that, and Congress doesn't have to log there, but that would be a big, I think, a big change. And it, I do think there's, there's kind of lurking behind all this, a kind of legislative veto, veto overhang to, 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 to keep them in the game because um, they lost the legislative veto. But it's a big shame, and I agree that one of the ways that few ways it can get this is major questions and non-delegation to throw out a couple of statutes to embarrass the Congress and actually getting back to work. But I think it'd be better if they spent more time in town and got to know each other and um, go back to regular order because that's, that's what, uh, what produces the best legislative product. 
Well, that's 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 great and very informative. And and I know that you mentioned some of it is the change in leadership with the leaders taking more control, the constitutional doctrinal development about legislative veto, folks being in town. I mean, have we lost that forever though with the um, the amount of the cost of campaigns and having to go back home? for election purposes, or is there something that can be done, you think, here in town to encourage people to stay and do more work? Well, I think you can, look, this is, I get this from my daughter, who, who may not be the best source, but she's a reporter, a very good reporter, um, and uh, she's talked to a lot of Congress people uh, about this, and she says, you scratch any congressman, and you'll find that they don't really like being here because there's nothing for them to do. There's nothing for them to do except make robocalls, I mean, you know, calls to raise money, and they're not really included in the process. And so I think if they were more included in the process, their agencies were refunded. I think Gingrich led the fight to defund the Congress that, you know, and, and, the, and of course, the agencies kept getting more and more funding. So now Congress kind of has to defer for expertise, and they shouldn't have to since they hold power of the purse. So that would make a big, big difference if they refund themselves. And, and get the information they need to do what they need to do. And could that be handled, do you think, by increasing committee staff and legal staff and having yes. in-house experts? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Um, and so I know that you started your work uh, on the legislative process in a kind of a private capacity, and then you were White House counsel. Can you just even basically tell us, as a White House counsel, what your main duties were, how you spent most of your day. And did you work much with Congress? Was it mostly on judicial noms, meeting with the president? What did that look like? Well, I'd sort of say there were four buckets, still probably the same. Ethics, you're the sort of ethics officer, chief for the executive branch and certainly for the White House. Uh, judicial selection and, and, and confirmation, um, war powers, and then defending the power of the presidency, which is related of course, to the other three. Um, I think that uh, we were in the shadow still of Watergate, and the president was trying to get back some of what had, had been taken. Uh, today, I think the presidency has too much, and I don't know what I would do, whether I would have if I were uh, a counsel again in the last you know, decade, whether I would have said to the president, no, you're, this is going too far, you can't do this. I don't know whether I would have done that or not. But um, I'd like to think I might have, but I'm not sure. Um, but that is an issue, and I hope future White House counsel will, will moderate what the president does and, and, and keep uh, holding Congress to uh, feet to the fire. I think that the issue I spent more time alone with the president, this might surprise uh, people here, the thing I spent most time with him, and a lot of time, and he said, don't talk to the Department of Justice, there's no comment on Barr, but don't talk to the Department of Justice, they'll leak, and I want you to do it, you've got a smart enough staff, and that was over war powers. That was over, which was the first time Congress had actually voted um, since World War II, and he thought it was very important to do so. It was a huge fight over whether we do it or whether he could get them to do the vote, and when the vote occurred, it was extremely close, but Congress or Senate, the Senate never... It never looked better, in my opinion, than, than the debate over that issue. It was really, really elegant and high level and civil. And uh, so that was, that was the issue I spent the most time with him. And I'm afraid that we've let that get away. And, and Congress has really got to reassert its central congressionally delegated. This is really delegation uh, to, um, by, the, by the 
by the Constitution to uh, to the Congress to exercise its war powers responsibilities. So you mentioned at least on the war powers, not talking as much to DOJ. But I do find this interesting because we had, of course, two former heads of the Office of Legal Counsel. I know, I know. Steve's probably going to say, what in the heck? No, 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 my question is just, well, so, gee, could you talk, I mean, is there anything more you can say generally about at that time um, in the late 80s, early 90s, what the dynamic was between the White House Counsel's Office and the Office of Legal Counsel? If, you know, if you you talked about other, other issues or, you know, how everybody, how the legal advisors all came together. So repeat that. I'm not sure. If well, did you work closely with the Office of Legal Counsel? Of course I did. Of course I did. What did that look like? And, and you know, again, I'm telling too many stories, but, but they are good illustrations. So the question came up, you know, about the vote. Should there be a vote? And the president decided, and I have a picture in my house of, of, of Skokoff and me, um, and the president, and he's talking on the phone to Baker, but when the photograph was taken, and but he's going to tell Scowcroft that he's going to reject his advice not to ask Congress, and accept my advice that he had to ask Congress, and that was decided over a over a weekend. Of letters he actually typed up the letters himself to Congress. It, it, it came David, and he went out first thing Monday morning. Then Sununu comes back, uh, the chief of staff, and gets wind that something's going on, so he calls them all lawyers meeting with the attorney general and the legal advisor and the joint chiefs. Everybody was there, uh, Justice Department, of course. And um, it was sort of a, a, a sham because the decision had already been made. And about a half an hour later, after everybody left, Ludic calls me from uh, OLC, Mike Ludic and Judge Ludic, and he says, oh, you got to come. i got to come down and see you. Uh, it's going to be a constitutional revolution if we don't ask Congress for authority. And I said, Mike, just relax. You don't have to come up here. Um, uh, it's been decided. The letters already went out three hours before the meeting took place, so don't worry about it. Anyway, so... Did that make him feel better or worse? Did that make who feel better? <laughs> Judge Ludig. Uh, Ludig felt much better, but I think he was suspicious, you know, because uh, he was very worried, you know. That's great. But, well, that's, but, but you know, I... I channeled him pretty well when I... That's great. Well, I know one other high-profile development that's still impacting the court today, actually, that happened during your tenure as White House counsel was the nomination and confirmation of Justice Thomas, 30-year legacy on the court, and you remain good friends with him. So I wonder if there's anything you can say about your role in you know, his selection and getting him across the line. At the time, would you and the president have anticipated that he would have the significant role on the court that he's had today? Well, I think all of us who were involved knew this was a, a, a real home run and um, knew that there was going to be opposition because parallel to this, you have a question maybe about... Um, you know, legislation during uh, the Bush years, but uh, there was legislation pending called the 1991 Civil Rights Act that nobody's ever heard of, um, and it dealt primarily with the issue of quotas. Bush had to veto the bill and sustain it by one vote in order to get that quota provision out uh, before he signed it into law. And uh, But that was parallel to the Thomas nomination, and the three uh, senators, Metzenbaum, Simon, and Kennedy, who were on judiciary, who were also on Labor and, uh, labor and education, which oversaw 
uh, Thomas's work at Education and at EEOC, they knew his views about about preferences, and I think that's why they were most determined to uh, to try to stop him. And uh, they they leaked the the FBI report uh, of the Anita Hill interview, and uh, it was it was really ugly. And, but you know, President Bush anticipated it. I wasn't there, but I but I've been told. He told me what happened. He pulls the nomination is made up in Kenny Bunkford. He pulls him into his bedroom and he says, "I wasn't there." He says, "You know, uh, this is going to be a really really rough ride for you and me, um, Judge. And I I'm going to stick with you if you stick with me." And it was a it was wonderful, but it was not easy. Uh, D.C. Circuit was easy. And it was very important because every single one of the judges, including the most liberal probably then Judge Mikva, was solidly behind him. And that was a critical component of uh, his confirmation. We didn't want to have any naysayers, but there were no naysayers. And, you know, after it was all over, Briar would say to me, because they sat next to each other for a long time, given the how slow they were to, to have nominations come through, uh, he used to say to me when I'd run into him at some thing or other, he used to say to me, that lovely, lovely man. How could they have done that to that lovely, lovely man? So, so the Supreme Court is a lot more difficult than the D.C. Circuit. Absolutely. And what do you think now, looking 30 years back at his service, his most important legacy? Well, I think it's still being played out, but I think it's his spotting very early on, as early as 20 years ago, in American trucking. He writes a concurrence, I guess, or maybe a, it's a concurrence, saying, I think it's time we look at the non-delegation doctrine uh, because of the breadth of the and vagueness of the of the of the delegations going to the agency. So he spotted that you know more than 20 years ago, and he's now been you know now I think there's going to be there will be a majority to begin to really build on the Grundy opinion and uh, you know really break some eggs. Do you anticipate that the a majority of the justices will be willing to apply the doctrine to find a statute or parts of it unconstitutional in the near future, this term? What is your thought? Well, I'm not sure it'll happen this term, but I think it's going to happen. And that may be more wish than prediction, but, uh, but, I, but there's signs all over the place and, you know, and, and opinions and things people say, judge, justices say when they're making speeches. There's a, there's a lot of chatter about it, has been for the last two or three years, and I think it's going to happen. And do you have a thought about what tests the court should apply? Do you think they'll just imply the intelligible principle doctrine and find that there are statutes that don't satisfy that test? Or do you think there will be a majority around a particular standard for how to evaluate how detailed a statute needs to be? Well, I think it's, it's going to be a common sense thing, and I think if you read uh, Gorsuch's opinion and, and, and Gundy, I think that sets out a pretty good test. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take some years to refine. Uh, it, I think it's got a lot more, uh, uh, that decision and the precedent has a lot more Panama refining and Schechter and cases later, you know, American trucking um, and the major questions cases. Uh, I think there's a lot more there than than Justice Stewart and, you know, the Senator, you know it when you see it. Um, I think it's going to be a lot more uh, precise than that, but it's not going to ever be probably a black letter, you know, that you can write on a bar exam and expect to get a two-word answer, yes or no, one-word answer. 
Yeah, no, that's a good description. And I mean, I know you mentioned that if a statute is found to be unconstitutional in part, maybe that'll embarrass members, make them feel like they have to legislate. Do you think that alone will be enough? Or are there certain institutional problems, like we talked about on some of the earlier panels, with members of Congress not wanting to pay the political cost of reaching agreement in detail that will still almost make the institution um, incapable of acting? I, you know, I hear this all the time. They want to punt because they don't want to take on the serious issues. I just don't believe that's true. I think they do want to participate. I think they do want to legislate. And I think, as I said earlier, that many of them, if you scratch, if not a majority of them, don't like it because they are cut out of the, cut out of the action. So um, I think a couple of things would be helpful. Uh, there could be, Congress might have to adopt these restrictions, but there could be a revolving door restriction like the revolving door stuff that is occasionally put in and, and then ignored and, and executive orders for the executive branch. But but congressmen ought to be ought to have a cooling off period of maybe two years before they senators before they go in and start lobbying, um, as many many congressmen stick around for in this town. And I think that um, I would like to see, and I know this is really provocative, but uh, being, being in charge of ethics for the executive branch, there are very strict rules of, of recusal. I know it's come up about the court briefly. I didn't hear all of it. Um, and I don't want to address that because that's a separate issue and really not the same. But for Congress, I don't know why you couldn't have a rule that if a congressman or senator takes, pick a number, 20,000, 30,000, but it can't be five, that's too small, takes that much money from an industry or a company and donations that they are disqualified from voting on anything that involves that that company. Well, and that would that would that would get people's attention, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't think they'll do it. But I think that would, would would help. So instead of just folks around town talking about applying some of the executive branch ethics rules to the court, maybe applying them to Congress. Do you think there are other requirements that are applicable to the executive branch like Freedom of Information Act that Congress should also consider applying to itself so there's more transparency? Well, I think if they follow the way they behaved and acted uh, for most of our history, that's enough. That's enough transparency because it's everything they do is put down into a word in some form or another, and you have to listen to the reasoning for it or against it and the arguments for it or against it, so it's fine. I don't think there's a need to do any, any more than that. And how about the institution of the court? So we also talked, panelists, a lot this morning about calls around town to reform. Had co-director of the center was a member of the president's Supreme Court Reform Commission, Judge Griffith. How do you see the institution of the court having changed since you were White House counsel, did the nomination of Justice Thomas with the president, and now as an observer around town litigating a lot in the courts? How's the Supreme Court changed fundamentally, or has it? Well, you know, it has changed enormously, um, but not in terms of its of its core mission. I don't think it's changed that much. And, you know, Justice Thomas himself kind of gave hint to that. You know, in the 11 years he talked, you know, I suppose I was in between various nominations, but it, but no, I don't think the core mission has changed. I don't know what this leak's going to do, and I don't really want to talk about it uh, because I think it was well aired um, in, in your panels this morning. But uh, um, yeah, I'd, 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 there's probably two or three big, big changes. One is they take about maybe a little less than 
a little more than half of what they used to take when I was clerking, and they have twice as many clerks now as they had when I was clerking. I mean, I think about it. I was thinking about it in the car coming, coming here that uh, I think there were 21 or 22 of us is all, and uh, seven of us had been in the same college class, wow. which I think is really quite extraordinary when you think about it. But there were only 21 or 22, and uh, there were fun times when the Hong Kong flu came through and Justice Stewart had, he was a big Yaley, you know, um, had tickets on the, on the Yale side of, of the Harvard Stadium. Uh, he invited, because his son got the Hong Kong flu, so he invited his clerks. They were both married. They didn't want to come without their wives. I was one of the single law clerks, so he picked me. We went, and it was, a, it was wonderful for me. That was the game where, as the Crimson said, Harvard won 29-29, and he was so dis- dismayed. When we got up after the game was over, because he had been waving his handkerchief, too, like all the other Yalers, and boom, uh, it's a 29-29 tie, and he wheels around and looking, you know, you know, Dowling and Hill, they've never lost a game, never lost a game in high school in Ohio, and now they're like Damien and Pythias. Uh, this is the first time they've ever lost. And I said, but, but, but you didn't lose, Mr. Justice. It was a tie. And he looked at me and he said, no, you won. And he wheeled around and walked out, and... <laughs> He would have, always would avoid me in the hallway when I would walk along. And he would he sort of, you know, it took a month for him to speak to me again. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I mean, I know you say, and, and, and I, but but I will I will add that that there are. <clears throat> this, I'm talking telling too many stories, but this is the um, one one of the pleasures with a smaller law clerk group is you, is you could park in the parking lot with, with where the justices were parked. And um, the prequel to this is that the chief had, had asked me to teach a course to the guards, the police, about the latest developments in criminal law, criminal procedure, which there were, of which there were a lot back in those days. And, uh, and so he had me teach this course, three, three sessions. And there was a law clerk, m- many of you may know him. Some of you may have studied under him or with him, taught with him. Bruce Ackerman, who was very liberal, clerking for the most conservative justice, Justice Harlan. And he audited my classes in order to make sure I wasn't, you know, stretching things, I being conservative in his view. And um, later, after this was over, it was spring, beautiful spring, driving up the ramp. And the tableau in front is the cars in front of me blocking the ramp. And the door opening, somebody getting out, and across this is a guy with a purse in his hand running and a Supreme Court guard trying to tackle him, and a little old lady way behind screaming, he's got my purse, he's got my purse. And, um, and so I have to come to a stop, and what's happening in front of me is someone getting out of the car, it's Bruce, and the, and the poor cop is still struggling to, wrestle, to, to tackle this guy, and he's screaming with his arms, Give him his warnings. Give him his warnings. <laughs> That's great. That's very interesting. So they definitely have <laughs> they definitely have fewer cases on the docket now, more law clerks. I mean, do you – but, I mean, I think the takeaway earlier today was the institution is strong. Do you think that there needed to be a Supreme Court reform commission? What do you think was – are you willing or do you have thoughts on what was motivating President Biden to try to have such a commission and whether it was necessary? Oh, I, I don't know what motivated him. I mean, I, I, I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know. Um, but um, but the 
you know, a lot of, of, of Democrats and liberals thought that the confirmation process was, was not fair and whatnot. Um, I just point out to people that, that, that President Bush, 41, nominated uh, Justice Roberts to the D.C. Circuit in January of 1991, and he never got a hearing, let alone a vote. So that's for the D.C. Circuit, not the Supreme Court. Not the same thing, but not too far different. So uh, this, is, this is the way politics works, and I think that's what motivated it. But uh, I don't think there needs to be any reform. I think packing would be a terrible idea, and I think both uh, Ginsburg and Breyer have, have, have said as much. So, um, yeah, I think be, that would be a, a big mistake. That's great. Well, you've been very generous to share a lot of stories with us. Would it be okay to see if there's a member or two of the audience who might have sure. a question on these issues? Great. So do we have the mic? We've got... We've got um, there's one thing I want to say before you, while you're doing the mic. You know, how has the court changed? Well, one thing is it's not doing a lot of the criminal procedure stuff. The other thing, and the big thing, is it's not spending so much time on pornography. And this was a big problem, and it was it was something that the chief felt very uh, uh, felt to, felt to be very important. He came from a Scandinavian background, and, and you know they're kind of prudish, and so he was he didn't want community standards violated. And it's of course impossible, Justice Stewart. You know I know it when I see it. It was impossible to define, and, and Douglas didn't like the issues, and he would. He would always put the offending material, if it didn't come out right, in the appendix to his opinion or dissent. Uh, so it all kind of leaked out anyway. And there were movies. Every, every Wednesday there were movies for the, for the docket, you know, for the conference on Friday. And um, I'm told that Justice Marshall, we weren't allowed, allowed to go. That's how, that's how uh, just, uh, the Chief Justice was so careful about that. He wouldn't let us go. But all the other law clerks piled in, led by uh, Justice Marshall, who sat in the front and clapped his hands and thighs. And, um, later, when Bush was president and he invited the court <coughs> and, and retired members to um, Camp David, uh, Justice Marshall was too frail to go out and ride around in golf carts and stuff. So that was sort of a group that was rotating the talks. And when it came my turn, I said, well, Mr. Justice, you know, tell me about those movies because we were never allowed to go, those pornographic movies. And he said, he had a wonderful Southern night, he said, boy, there, there were no pornographic movies. And I said, but, but I'm told you, went, I know they were held. There were no pornographic movies. And it took me, you know, another 30 seconds to realize he wasn't saying there were no movies. He was just saying they weren't pornographic. Well, anyway, without drilling, no, that's great. No, that's good. That's I've never heard that in a group, so that's very good. And I don't want to drill down too much on that, but thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you for sharing that with us. Um, could we get a, so I think Jess Braven had a question. Is that right? Yeah. Um, just one, uh, one question. You mentioned you, you clerk. Thanks. You clerk for, for Chief Justice Warren. You mentioned Bruce Ackerman clerking for Justice Harlan. Examples of justices picking clerks who, who may not share their exact approach on the law. Uh, do, we don't seem to see that now. We see a lot of clerks who are selected, almost prepared for the position by being ideologically tested. Do you think that's a good or a bad development? Uh, uh, I mean, would, would you prefer to clerk for Justice Harlan, for example? Uh, or is it better to have consistency in the, among the clerks or some diversity of, of views within each uh, chamber? Well, I think that may have changed since, you know, I was known to be a conservative, um, but still, I was, you know, I was, you know, whenever 
bother me about it. And uh, and and Harlan was the most conservative justice, and 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 I think Bruce was the most liberal clerk. So there was a mix that the justices kind of enjoyed, and I think it's that's that's kind of disappeared a little bit, uh, but maybe unavoidable. And do we have one more? Yeah. Formats, uh, issues to Congress with war powers. I wonder what you would think is a way to obtain a settlement to the current crisis with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, is, is there anything on the drawing boards that might make sense? Uh, they were able to obtain an armistice with North Korea and all of the United Nations involvement, uh, all the nations involved, that there was a, a way to end the crisis. Do you foresee anything like this in this situation? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, I, I kind of hope that, you know, this is a personal, um, and I'm not in any position of authority over something like this. I do hope there's a resolution because there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, of, um, of um, trouble, a lot of suffering that's going on that doesn't need to. And the suffering is not just limited to Ukrainians and Russian soldiers. It's, it's, it's spread you know, because of food, you know, connections and energy. So I think it should be should be settled. But I'm not, you know, I don't think I've ever been exposed to trying to find some international way of, of doing this. I think uh, it's got to be the United States and China's going to play a role in Russia and Ukraine and the European Union. So I think between between them, they can get it done if they if they really want to. Great. Thank you. So we are just about at time, and I really want to thank you for coming and see if you have any closing thoughts. But I, what I love and just want to point out, I think, which was a really um, interesting, critical thing that you said early on that gets to a lot of the, what we were talking about this conference with separation of powers is challenging the thesis that, you know, today the members of Congress are gone just because they want to win elections and there's no hope. And you're suggesting actually it's the opposite, that they're gone because they don't have as much to do here, because there's been a centralization of control, the loss of the ability to have the legislative veto. But perhaps if there is a ramping up in expertise or a reinvigoration of Congress and staff, maybe that will help. And it's I think that's an interesting point and perhaps was shied away from, as you uh, suggested by Speaker Gingrich and those in the past, because the thought always was corruption, we don't want too much power. But I do wonder if how... If because in the last three decades, administrative agencies in the executive branch have taken so much power, if now folks will sort of reconsider and see the dynamic as such that Congress needs to reassert itself to get rid of the perhaps more dangerous wolf, which is the un, you know unelected folks and other branches uh, making decisions, and if certain court opinions will force their hand, because you say maybe the court will relook at delegation. We had an interesting opinion last week coming out of the Fifth Circuit, essentially finding that Congress has not given the Securities and Exchange Commission anywhere near enough standards to know whether it needs to do in-house adjudication or go uh, to the courts. And so there really does seem to be a demand from many different corners uh, calling for Congress to take more action. And so maybe we can all together think about possible solutions. So on that, is there any parting words for the conference? that you would like to share? Well, I've, you know, I've felt kind of useless coming up here after the previous panel, which was very good. I got to listen to that for another 45 minutes. Uh, but, um, and I'm sorry to kick you off, you know, you guys, because you were doing great. So, no, I, I, I think it's a combination of things. There's no one cause, uh, but um, it, it uh, is critical. <coughs> the, 
they do make friends if they're on the same committees, but they don't have the same breadth of, of, of vision about who else is in Congress, what's going on. So I do think if they they got to spend a day or two more in Washington, frankly, um, and make up for it, it's 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 okay to lengthen the home time they, they might get, um, you know, more vacation time or whatever. But I think the concentrated time is necessary to work through some of the difficult issues. And um, I can I can remember all the you know in many ways, sort of the last great sort of congressional. Um, operation was the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990 when I can remember two or three all-nighters in, in, in uh, um, the majority leader's office here in, 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 in the Capitol. And uh, there, there, were, um, there, there were incredibly detailed discussions that were held. Dingle did a wonderful job. He never would have Delegated, never would delegate any any more discretion to the EPA than he absolutely had to, uh, which is not an attitude you hear much today anymore. But um, it was a it was a hard fought thing, but it passed with large majorities, and it's been very stable. And that I think is the key thing to remember: that Congress, only Congress, can provide for a, a truly political issue. Um, only Congress can provide the stability and the lasting power to make this thing accepted, acceptable to the country at large. And they've really got to get back in the game and got to get back to regular order, got to pass different appropriations bills, they got to regain their power of the purse, they got to stop creating things like the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which is funded by the Fed and not by Congress. And, you know, when, when uh, the previous head went to, uh, he didn't have to go, he didn't have to attend any Senate or House hearing because they didn't have any power over him anyway. But he did go. He did accept some invitation to speak. And a member of the House Financial Affairs Subcommittee said, uh, 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 "Who was in charge of this rather lavish 200 plus million renovation of your of your offices?" And Cordray's answer was, and this was more insubordinate than I ever was to my parents or any of my teachers. He said, "What what does it matter to you?" Put, put so a on that note, on it. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Great.